Good evening. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to our special Federal Budget 2020 webcast with Chief Economist Bill Evans. I'm Joanna White, Managing Director of Cash Management. We've all just heard Treasurer Josh Frydenberg deliver one of the most anticipated federal budgets in recent history, in what has been a year that no one could have predicted. 2020 certainly brought significant uncertainty to businesses across Australia, not just due to COVID, but also sustained drought and summer bushfires. We know that the path to recovery is different for every business. As the first bank to offer support to our customers in the face of COVID, when it first emerged as an issue for import and export businesses, through to our ongoing relief packages, we are here to help and we want to support you through this period to help you return to a position of strength and growth into the future. With that, I'll hand over to our Chief Economist, Bill Evans. Thank you, Bill. Well, thank you. But let's now move on to the budget uh, and those stunning numbers that we're expecting. So the deficit in 2021, $213 billion, uh, coming off an $85 billion deficit in 1920, and, of course, that $0.7 billion deficit in eighteen nineteen before COVID took its toll on the economy. How the government must have wished that they could have just uh, moved a couple of numbers around and got that minus 0.7 into a very modest surplus so they could have said they brought the budget into surplus. But, of course, with the damage that COVID has done to the economy, the, we've seen this huge blowout. <clears throat> so the peak, $213 billion. Uh, next year, 21-22, billion. The year after, $87.9 billion. And the year after that, $66.9 billion. So absolutely stunning numbers. And as you can see, five years into COVID, and they're expecting the deficit will still be larger than it was at that peak of the GFC of $54.5 billion. So quite a stunning story here, but of course we were all expecting those. Indeed, we at Westpac were expecting that, that deficit to be $240 billion. So the numbers come in a little better than we were expecting. Um, if we analyse the key story, however, what does it mean for net debt? So net debt is a proportion of GDP. Uh, in 2018-19, that's the black line, was 19%. And we think that by the time we work this one through, it'll be up to around 43%. But as the Treasurer said tonight, that's about half the net debt ratio in the UK, about a third of the net debt ratio in the US, and a quarter of the net debt ratio in Japan. So because we started off with such low net debt, as you can see, back in 2008-9, uh, <clears throat> we actually had uh, a positive, positive debt. Uh, and of course, but the other really, really important point, and this is the one that's really important for the global economy, and that is that the financial markets have said, hey, you can run up big levels of debt because the outlook for the economy is so concerning. You can fund it without actually raising the proportion of GDP represented by interest payments. So you see that red line, despite the fact we've had this big blowout in the debt levels, the interest payment as a proportion of GDP is actually falling. It's going to fall to less than 1% of GDP. And that's because the long-term bond rate is now about 0.8%. We can recall long-term bond rates being 5, 6, 7, 8, 9%. So as you build your debt, because the long-term bond rate is so low, uh, you, your debt servicing ratio remains very low. And that is basically signaling to governments that they need to fill the hole. The financial markets are telling us how low interest rates are going to be for a long time. That's related to low inflation and low growth. So governments need to respond, and the financial markets are providing them with that flexibility uh, when, because the net debt to GDP ratio is held down so well. So what about the budget? How did we get that $213.7 billion? Well, it was made up of three components. The first one was policy that we already knew about, $117 billion. And, of course, that was dominated by the cost of JobKeeper in the September quarter. So we already knew about that $117 billion. What we didn't know about was 
what impact will the weakness in the economy, lower taxes, higher unemployment benefits, what impact will that have on the deficit? And what's the cost of new policy? And of course, we had the new policy that was outlined tonight. So new policy, 42.8 billion. The weakness in the economy, 53.9 billion. But of course, existing policy that's already in place, 117 billion, giving you 213.7 billion. For next year, of course, the existing policy is quite small. So it was all about new policy. And of course, we, the new policy that was announced tonight, costing about 53.9 billion, but the weakness in the economy will still take 66.5 billion onto the deficit. So still weaker company tax, <clears throat> um, larger unemployment benefits, weaker personal taxes. So about half of the, of the deficit next year will be from new policy and about half will be from the weakness in the economy. And what have been the major policy initiatives? Well, we've heard a lot about the personal tax cuts. And I hope some of you read the Westpac, the Westpac preview on Thursday, where let me read from that preview where we said, readers might be surprised that we advocate the bringing forward of the stage two tax cuts to July 2020. At that time, that wasn't really being discussed. Um, last year, I was saying bring forward the July 2022 tax cuts to July 2021, but I didn't think the government would ever consider bringing it forward retrospectively. But that's what's needed. The money needs to be there now, here and now for tax for taxpayers. So I was absolutely delighted when as we went through the, last, the few days after our, our, our forecast in, in the budget preview, it started to actually leaks started to come out that the government was contemplating bringing them forward retrospectively. And that's what we saw tonight. So the two key aspects of those tax cuts are that uh, you don't pay any tax up to 18,000 and from 18,000 to 37,000, you used to pay 19%. And then from 37,000 to 90,000, you'd pay 32.5. And then from 90 to 180, 45%. That now changes. You don't pay the 32.5 until you get to 45,000, and you don't pay the 37 until you get to 120,000. So, this is a substantial tax cut for middle income earners, low and middle income earners, but also it's very important that the rebate up to 1,050 for lower income earners, for people earning up to 90,000 will be retained for another year. So that second dot point is also important. They're going to extend the low and middle income tax offset up to 2,700 for singles and 5,500 for dual families going to be available to those earning under 90K. There'll also be additional payments to pensioners, disabled and carers, most people that are getting welfare in two hits of $250 each. That'll cost 2.6 billion. So they're two very, very large parts of the, uh, of the policy initiatives, costing $24 billion over two years, around uh, $7 billion in the first year and around four, uh, four, uh, $17 billion in the second year. Two of the very, very large components of new policy. If you remember, new policy um, is going to cost $42.8 billion in, in uh, 2021, and 53.9 billion in 2022. So what's the next what's the next big uh, policy? There's a lot of a lot of words here, but it's very very important that we go through these because this is undoubtedly the surprise of the budget, but I consider to be a really really bold move. It's going to cost 16 billion in the, in the first year and another 11 billion in the second year. So a total of around $29 billion, $27 billion over those two years. So let's think what that is. Temporary tax write-offs for businesses with turnover up to $5 billion, and it applies to the full cost of eligible depreciable assets, the full cost until, and, until June 2022. So any company with turnover of less than $5 billion can write off the whole cost of the investment all the way out to June 2022. 
the government figures that that covers 99% of eligible businesses. Obviously, that's by number. It's not by size. The big companies that have much bigger turnover than $5 billion will not be benefiting. And that is actually one of the themes of this budget. I don't, cons- I don't think there's anything in the budget really for really big business, but certainly for smaller business, this is a really major development. Government expects it'll lift investment uh, by $200, $200 billion, uh, and it'll cost them $12.9 billion in 2021-2022 and $18 billion in 2023. So a very, very big initiative in this budget. The second one is a temporary loss carry back for businesses with turnover up to $5 billion again. If they've made losses in 2020, up in 2020 or 2021, they can carry those losses back against profits made since 2018-19. So this, I think, is also providing businesses with some tax relief uh, from this huge shock to their incomes in 2021 and 2022. And Treasury estimates that two measures will add about 50,000 jobs. For, for SMEs, there's the, refund, the, the refundable R&D tax offset cap on annual cash refunds removed, while the intensity test will be streamlined a non-refundable R&D tax offset increase for large firms from 2021, costing about $0.8 billion. So, yes, these are helpful, but as you can see, the big numbers in this are around the nearly $30 billion that's going to cost to finance these write-downs. Now, this is a, there's an assumption here that business investment will be boosted because if businesses don't embrace this, then it won't cost them very much, but it won't boost the economy either. And the government has a very, very strong growth forecast for 21-22 that's related to the expected huge lift in business investment associated with this write-down. The good thing for the government is that it's finite, it's covering this, the, the difficult period, it's trying to bring forward investment, but unlike a company tax cut, it's not forever. And so that's why they feel, uh, if you look at their numbers in future years, because the depreciation is normally spread out over a much longer period, uh, there'll be a tax pullback in later years when presumably companies can afford to wear it. The third theme was about what are they going to do about replacing JobKeeper and JobSeeker. So there was a new policy announced called JobMaker. JobMaker is for hiring new workers, not subsidising existing workers. So if you hire someone um, in the, between the ages of 16 to 29, you will get a $200 subsidy uh, per week subsidy uh, to subsidise their income, and for someone 30 to 35, $100 a week. That's expected to cost about $3.75 billion. That's actually quite a small amount as well. When you think that JobKeeper cost, over a, a cost $70 billion over, two, over three quarters, you can see the difference between JobKeeper and, uh, and the one and the job maker that it's replacing. And then there's Job Trainer that we've heard about this one, 100,000 new apprenticeships costing $1.2 billion. And what they'll be doing is they'll be subsidising half their incomes um, up to, um, uh, to uh, I think um, that'll up, up uh, the uh, subsidising their incomes up to um, uh, that number escapes me at the moment. But that'll cost $1.2 billion over two years. So once again, a good policy, targeting apprenticeships, targeting new jobs, but moving away from a policy where you're subsidising existing jobs and you're only really trying to, sub- to target the new jobs. My concern about this is that we are going to see industries that will continue to be affected by social distancing and foreign travel bans through most of next year. So the, 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 the entertainment sector the travel sector, the transport sector, the, I believe the, the hospitality sectors, the accommodation sectors will still be affected. There's nothing in here to help existing jobs once that JobKeeper runs off at the end of March. It's only for new jobs. What we didn't see was the JobSeeker supplement extended. Now, we know that the JobSeeker supplement... Um, was, was was reduced from $550 to 
to $250 uh, at the end of September, but that's only going to the end of December. We did not hear anything tonight about extending it beyond the end of, of, of September, of December. It's an absolute must that that has to happen. And we assumed in our numbers, when we were forecasting the forecast deficits, we assumed that that system would be uh, extended indefinitely because we need to get a better balance between a living wage and a wage that encourages people to join the workforce. So uh, minimum wage is $1,500 a fortnight. When job, when job seeker was $1,150, probably a bit too close to encourage people to work. But taking it, taking it down um, uh, by $300 to $850, I think is about right. That's still comfortably above the old new start. So we didn't see that. That will have to happen. We, that will cost about four billion a quarter forever. It's not. It's unlike all of these other other initiatives we're seeing. That would be open ended, but we have to do that, and I expect that we'll see that sometime uh, near the end of the year. The other the other policy we're expecting was around infrastructure. Uh, there's five point seven seven billion for new and accelerated projects. States and territories under this line under this message, use it or lose it about $2.5 billion for that. That's much less than we expected. We were penciling in around $10 billion. Um, the use it or lose it theme, I think, is important because I think what they want to do is they want to get projects that can be up and running quickly. So not big projects that will require environmental approvals, could take years. Uh, refurbishing existing infrastructure, as we saw with the NDS, um, uh, uh, Renovations, uh, uh, renovations, repairs for existing roads, etc. I think they're a good idea, but I, I think we should have put more money into the infrastructure projects. Uh, An industry policy, you've heard a lot about that, the modern industry strategy where they're looking at the six sectors, defence, space, food and beverages, recycling and clean energy, medical projects, resource technologies and critical minerals. 0.5 billion, a further 1 billion in the out year. So not that expensive. So really, when we think about the, uh, the, the, the budget, the policy reform, no new initiatives, but, but we're certainly pleased with regard to the, um, the, the initiatives around responsible lending uh, and the initiatives around um, uh, company um, and the initiatives around energy. Um, so what about the growth forecasts? Well, Treasury is in line with Westpac for 2021, minus 1.5%. Next year, they're at 4.75%. And that's being driven by the assumption of a really, really big boost to business investment associated with that policy. <clears throat> we weren't aware of that policy, the big write-down policy, when we did our forecast, I would have to accept the fact that business investment will be stronger, but the 4.75% is a, is a, is a particularly uh, strong number. But they need to have a big number in order to bring down that unemployment rate. So they're expecting that the unemployment rate will be down to 6.5% by 2021-22, by the end of, by mid-2022. Uh, we're expecting that that's a little optimistic. We're looking at about seven. But I think the interesting thing is that up until tonight, Treasury and the Reserve Bank were telling us that the unemployment rate at the end of this year was going to be 10%. We thought about 7.8%. I expect that their numbers now, as we can see here, at the at June 2021, they're down to 7.25%. We're at 7.9%. So they've significantly lowered their unemployment forecast for the end of this year. Let me now make a few comments about Westpac's forecasts and what we see going on in the economy at the moment. What I do every year for the budget is I do a report card. I'll be very quick this time because the forecasts aren't particularly interesting now. But let me say that last year, uh, when in May last year, I said at the time the cash rate was 1.5%, and I said that by May 2020, of course not knowing that COVID was there, it would be down to 1%. That was a pretty aggressive forecast. Whoever thought that the cash rate would get down to 1%? Of course, by May 2020, 
with the COVID developments, it got down to 0.25%. So we got the number, the direction about right, but of course we didn't get the magnitude given the COVID story. The other big forecast was the Aussie dollar. At the budget last year in May, the Aussie dollar was at 71 cents. We said it'd be at 68 cents by May 2020. If we look back where it was in May 2020, it was about 67 cents. So we did pretty well there, um, particularly given that uh, COVID, obviously, the initial impact of COVID was to have a big drag on the Aussie dollar. Aussie dollar bottomed out in, in March uh, and was lifting during May and, of course, is significantly higher today. So what are our forecasts now? Well, at the moment, the RBA cash rate is 0.25%. I'm expecting it to be 0.1% at the next board meeting. So we didn't see a move today, but all the language I saw from the Reserve Bank indicated that, there, that the, we can expect to see a rate cut in Melbourne Cup Day this year to 0.1%. The reason why I think that they're now prepared to do that is that they used to signal that 0.25 was the effective lower bound of the rates, but I think they now realise that the plumbing of the financial system can wear an even lower rate. They think they know how to work that out. And so they can lower it down to 0.1. They'll stay out of negative territory. They're worried about the impact that'll have upon the um, financial system. Uh, my view is that maybe they'll start to think about that further down the track, particularly if things like this big investment allowance doesn't get taken up in the way they're expecting. But that's for another day. At the moment, I think it'll stay at 0.1 and will stay there out until June 2023. They'll lower the three-year bond rate to 0.184. Remember that their target, their official target is 0.25. But since some of us have been calling for this rate cut, the financial markets have really started to take that on board. And that 0.25 to 0.26 three-year bond rate has been coming down in expectation that the Reserve Bank will adopt a target of 0.1. So a 0.1 target for the bond rate, a 0.1 target for the cash rate. But I think the, uh, the, the Aussie dollar is going to go in the other direction. Aussie dollars had a flat month in September, but I think that over the course of the rest of this year and next year through to December 2021, the Aussie dollar is going to lift up to 80 cents. So some of you may have taken advantage of the fact that a month ago, the Aussie dollar was nearly at 74. It's come back under 72, got near, near to 71. Now it's sort of stabilising but I expect it to gradually continue to lift over the course of the next 18 months. A couple of reasons why we've got that strong view on the Aussie dollar is that the so-called fair value model for the Aussie dollar indicates that the fair value for Aussie dollar is around 80 cents. Bear in mind, we've got an iron ore price above $100, the coal price is recovering, uh, and our interest rates are still, at this stage, are still above US rates. Uh, and I think we're going to move into a period where markets are going to want to take risk on again. The month of September was a bad month for risk, but I think we're going to start moving into a, into a world where risk starts to become more attractive again, and that'll support the Aussie dollar. And the other point I wanted to make about the Aussie dollar is that once it turns, it turns for long periods. So we had a four-year cycle between 1996 and 2000, we had a seven-year cycle between uh, 2000 and 2008, a short, sharp correction after the GFC, then another two-year cycle, a four-year down cycle, a two-year lift, a two-year down cycle. We know it bottomed out in March this year. I think it's going to be at least two years uh, where the Aussie dollar will continue to rise, and we've got that 80-cent target in our sights. So Aussie dollar cycles tend to be long and they tend to be related to China. And what we have to remember is that China is on a tear at the moment and it's going to really outdo the US. The US is still dealing with COVID issues. It's dealing with a lack of fiscal stimulus. It's interesting, you know, we talked about the $220, $220 billion deficit. That's about 11% of GDP for Australia. The average around the world at the moment for fiscal deficits during the COVID period is around 11 to 12%. So the US is about 10.7, other countries are a little above that, but that 12%, 11 to 12% deficit 
that we're seeing in the budget is not dissimilar to the rest of the world. Although at the moment, the US is having trouble getting the next stage of its stimulus package through. But look at the difference between China and the US over the next two years. So give GDP, China GDP, a value of 100 back at the end of 2019. Do the same for the US. China fell 10%. It's going to end, we think it'll end 2021 at around 113. So a 13% lift in GDP over those two years. The US will still be below where it was at the end of 19 at the end of 2021. So the China is going to really outperform the US. That's going to provide the Chinese currency, the RMB, substantial strength relative to the US dollar, which we think is pretty much peaked. And the strength of the Chinese currency and the strength of the region is going to be very positive for the Australian dollar. I wanted to make one comment about, um, about China's trade with Australia. It's about $150 billion. I think that about $100 billion of that is very safe, even if we do have more trade tensions. Iron ore, $65 billion, LNG, $18 billion, gold and base metals, $14 billion. But the other $50 billion, coal, services, agriculture, very risky. And if we were to go into a, a tra- two trading blocks, then we would have real concerns about those three components. I think going forward, even though we've seen a resurgence in cases in the US and Europe at the moment, I think the market is going to continue to provide more and more attention to vaccine development. You notice that the government's forecast tonight have assumed a vaccine second half of next year. As we get closer and closer to those dates, progress around vaccines, I think, is going to dominate confidence in markets. And at the moment, we have eight stage three uh, vaccine projects going on at the moment. That's where we've got thousands of human, human tests. And I think we need to watch very closely as to how these results start to come out. Because if you start to get a few encouraging results, we've heard of AstraZeneca as being the one that most people are aware of because of Australia's support for that one. But there are others out there in the U.S., I think the vaccine story is the one that's going to dominate rather than the new case story. And that's what will will support markets. Let me say a few words about the Australian economy. The big story, of course, is a huge gap that's opened up between the other states and Victoria. So if you look at the Apple Mobility Index, you can see how Victoria's index is now back to around where it was in that April-May period and the others have lifted dramatically. And indeed, that pecking order for businesses looks about right. So Sydney, well above Melbourne, but a little below Brisbane and substantially below Adelaide and Perth. And we can also see that story in our own card transaction data. So the turnover of our credit cards, millions of transactions every day. You can see the turnover in Victoria well down below the 100 level, and the others are above 100. And what that's saying is that at 100, the growth rate that you had before COVID gives you a level of 100. So in the other states, transaction activity on credit cards is indeed growing at a faster pace now than it was growing before COVID. But the national numbers, of course, are substantially held up held down by Victoria. But remember, the Victorian numbers are about as bad as they were in April, May. They're not a lot worse, even though they're on stage four. Victorians have found ways to spend money that they didn't, they hadn't found in that April, May period. So while it's a disastrous story in Victoria, it's not as bad as many are saying. Uh, we're expecting, uh, if we look at other transa- uh, transaction stories, For instance, those most exposed to COVID, the ones we talked about before, transport, hospitality, accommodation, still well below the 100, and Victoria substantially below the 100. Whereas the big ticket items, major household appliances, running well above the 100 for every state except Victoria, which of course has taken a major hit um, in the stage four. Uh, If we look generally nationally, this picture of household goods running well above the 100, faster growth in spending there than we saw pre-COVID, 
Uh, food, well above 100. Okay, we haven't seen the stockpiling effect we saw in March. And hospitality recovering pretty well, but still well below the growth rates we saw before COVID. So the spending patterns are clear. There's a clear pecking order in the States and a clear pecking order between household goods, food, and hospitality. In terms of growth in the second half of this year, we're expecting that the Victorian economy will contract by 7% this year, that the New South Wales economy and the Brisbane and the Queensland economy will contract by 2.5% and Perth will be, and Western Australia will be flat for the year. The nation contract by about 3.5%. The Reserve Bank had been forecasting a 6% contraction and Treasury numbers were pretty close. We can see tonight that they've had to substantially upgrade their growth numbers. And these are numbers that we've been telling you about for quite some time. For instance, we think in the September quarter, growth will be 1.8% and in the December quarter, 2.2%. 4% growth in the second half of this year. But that's coming off, of course, the 7% contraction that we had in the June quarter and the minus 0.3, which added up to the recession that we had in the first quarter. Next year, things will be slower. Next year, we think growth of around 2.5%. And I'm interested to see that Treasury forecasts are now pretty much in line with our forecast. So they've got probably got stronger growth next year, but still weaker growth than we've got this year. But the year average numbers for the 2021 year look to be about the same now. They have substantially lifted their growth forecasts. If I think about the employment story, the number of jobs that were lost between February and May, 800,000. The number of jobs that were regained until August, 400,000. So as the Treasurer said tonight, around half the jobs that were lost have been regained. Now, as JobKeeper um, gets scaled back, uh, we think by the end of this year, we will see further job losses. Modest, but further job losses. And next year, we'll be looking for about 200,000 in new jobs. So net-net, we still won't have recovered all the jobs we lost in the February-May period, and that's why we're going to continue to have a pretty high unemployment rate. So there's two measures of unemployment. There's a so-called effective unemployment rate. These are people who have got a job but they're not working any hours. And they're also, the unemployment rate was held down as people left the workforce when they couldn't look for jobs or they felt that there were no jobs available. So the total of those is the effective unemployment rate peaked at 15% in April, May. It's now down to around 10. We think it'll hold, a, a get down to about 9% by the end of 2022. And the unemployment rate itself down to about 7%. That's still too high. Look where it was before uh, the COVID. It was down at around 45 to 5%. So we've got a long, long way to go to restore those unemployment rates. But the budget tonight has certainly, with a stimulus package of that size, has certainly brought us some way towards bringing those numbers down. Unfortunately, the history of unemployment is that in the early 80s, in the early 90s, in the early 80s, it took eight years to get back to the pre-recession level. And in the early 90s, it took 12 years, uh, 10 years. And then in the GFC, it took 12 years. And we still didn't get back to the pre-GFC unemployment rate of 4%. So it's going to be a long, hard road. And that's 7% at the end of 2022, pretty much in line with our thinking and with, the, and with the Treasury thinking, but think also about that effective unemployment rate, which will be around 9%. And this is because people will feel discouraged to come back into the workforce. And that's the one that does measure the pain. That's the one that we need to try and bring down more rapidly than even with this stimulatory budget, I think would be the case. Let me now talk for a moment about interest rates. So I said that I thought that I'd see the 10-year, the three-year bond rate come down further, and it's already fallen from 0.25. That's linked in with that fixed mortgage rate. My view is that's going to keep falling. I would think that that fixed mortgage rate 
consistent with what's happening with the three-year bond rate, could come down to 2% or less over the course of the next 18 months. And that's what the Reserve Bank wants. The government's doing its bit with regard to tax cuts and particularly stimulating business investment and infrastructure. The Reserve Bank's got to do its bit to helping housing. And you help housing by bringing down rates, and you can still bring those rates down. So if you look how far that fixed mortgage rate has come down since we got down to those rock-bottom cash rates, quite a significant move, down from 3% to a bit over 2% and likely to come down further. So that's why I'm strongly supportive of the Reserve Bank move to bring that three-year cash rate down further, that bond rate down further. And if we look at what's been happening on fixed and variable, you can see that the fall in the fix has been greater because the Reserve Bank's been able to get those bond rates down. And if I think they're coming down further, then I think it's likely that we could see even lower fixed rates going forward, which will help that housing market. Um, And we're already starting to see a lift in new lending for housing. So you can see that long fall that we saw in new lending for investors and in new lending for upgraders during that period when lending was restricted. And we, as I said before, getting rid of the responsible lending guidelines is going to provide this housing market with a very, very welcome boost. But we've already started to see a lift in demand for housing credit. That happened when we saw those rates come down in March, April. COVID started to clear and people are starting to get back into wanting to borrow money. Even investors have started to kick up along with first home buyers and along with upgraders. So I think that's a process that we can, we'll continue to see, which will underpin a pretty modest fall in house prices. So this is, this is our forecast for the total fall in house prices between April this year and June next year. So for Australia, about a 5% fall. We've seen a two point, nearly a 3% fall. That's the red bit already. We think a bit more going up to 5%. Uh, the biggest pain will be in Melbourne, We've seen around 5%. I would expect another 7% fall in Melbourne. And in Sydney, we've seen a bit over three, a couple of percent more in Sydney. So why am I saying that? I think the main reason is the deferred loan build-up that we've seen. $180 billion in, um, in, in mortgages and about $55 billion in, um, in small business loans. So the banks have deferred those loans, but as we go through next year... Uh, some people will have to come back into the market and we may start to see some some distressed loans. I think that'll hold down the prices for the next 12 months. But then when we clear that hurdle and we're sitting there with these incredibly low rates and we're sitting there with this extraordinary budget stimulus, that's going to be a very, very important time to boost the housing market. So in 2022 and 2023, I'm expecting a 15% rise in house prices, uh, 20% in Brisbane, 18% in Perth, 12% even in Melbourne, and around 14% in Sydney. So once we get over that hump of those deferred loans and how they're dealt with, then I think it's going to be a very, very good environment for housing. Of course, the other issue is the collapse in population growth. And that will have a major impact upon certain parts of the housing market. Because two-thirds of temporary visa holders, two-thirds of net migration is temporary visa holders, more than 50% of which is foreign students. Uh, and they are very, very big renters. About 90% of them rent in high-rise, in, in, um, in properties around universities. That sector will have some, some challenges. But the low, low interest rates the stimuluses that we've seen today, the tax cuts, the boost to overall investment, I think will provide a very strong platform for an ongoing lift in, um, in, in house prices. So let me, go, let me go through with these numbers, this, uh, these summaries. We've had a, ma- a massive budget deficit of 200. We've got 240 there. That's what I thought it was going to be, 217, okay. But give us a break. We picked the, uh, the, the backdating of the tax cuts which was a very novel thing to do, and of course that came off. So one of our forecasts has done pretty well. Around 45 billion of new policies, 
backdating of the tax cuts was key and the generous investment allowances, totaling about $30 billion over two years. Quite extraordinary, much greater than I was expecting. The focus on tax cuts, business investment, boosting jobs and infrastructure. RBA is going to cut rates by 10 base, to 10 basis points on November 3. Aussies moving through 75 this year, 80 next year. Economy will grow by 4% in the second half of this year. Would have been more if it hadn't been for Victoria, but Victoria will be coming back in the fourth quarter. Spending on household goods, food, and there's been a strong lift, has boosted consumption. Output is still going to be 1% below it, what, where it was at the end of 19, at the end of 2021, a bit like what we've seen in the US. We can't expect to see that China result, which is going to be an extraordinary 13% higher. Unemployment rate's going to peak this year at 8%. And it'll st- but unfortunately, it'll still be 7% by the end of 2022. Household goods are going to remain strong, but not so much hospitality. Dwelling prices are going to stabilise, down another 8% in Melbourne, but lift by 15% in 22-23. You know, my issue there is that when someone has a really credible argument for a market, which I think I've got for 22-23, people bring forward the movement. They look forward and they say, gee, that looks right. I think I'll buy now. So if there's any risk on this, it's that I'm being too cautious on this second stage of, of price falls. And market sentiment is all, it will turn on away from counting new cases and watching vaccine progress. That progress, that success is getting closer and closer and closer. And as markets start to adopt, start to adopt that, then we'll start to see strength coming, I believe, in share markets and in risk currencies like the Aussie dollar. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you very much for giving me your customers to talk to. Thanks very much, Bill. Um, Fantastic insight. Great analysis, as always. Um, Good to see that you're so close to where the government's predicting. I'm sure they've just got it a little bit wrong. So we'll we'll come back to you on that. Uh, But we'll get straight to the questions. Um, So the first one is, will more spending actually get us out of the deep recession we are in, given the slow decline of the economy over the preceding years, especially when we are still in a pandemic? Oh, look, I think... You say we're in a pandemic, but we are reopening. Even Victoria is getting on top of its issues. And we've been very cautious, we've been very disciplined. I think we're going to start to see more confidence come back. The spending, the actual spending in the budget was less than I expected. There was less spending on infrastructure than I was expecting. But there's been more on investment allowances. uh, And of course, we saw the tax cuts. To tell you the truth, I was disappointed they didn't bring forward the tax the stage three tax cuts. And I think the reason for that is that they're going to have to have new legislation to bring forward the stage two tax cuts. And we know that Labor opposes the stage three tax cuts. So it may have been a messy time in Parliament if Labor was going to oppose the package. Uh, And I think the government really just wants to get that one through. The stage three tax cuts would have helped spending even more. Cost about $15 billion. I think they could have afforded it. I think they could have brought it, brought it forward to, to July 2021. Uh, and I think that would have provided Australians with a tremendous boost. And when you look at the analysis, the amount of tax paid by the top 5% of income earners was going to be around 32% with and without Stage 3. Because Stage 3 led to tax cuts all the way down to people earning 45000 So we missed that opportunity, but the spending, which I expect to come from the income boost from the tax cuts, I think will certainly help the economy. I would have liked to have seen more, and I'm very, very encouraged by those investment allowances. I think big businesses missed out, but I think it certainly we should. I'm going to go back and revise up my my investment forecast based upon those um, on those numbers. Yeah, no, great point. Agreed. The investment uh, spend is, is, is critical. Um, so next question, you touched on this a little bit when you talked about household spend, um, but some sectors of the economy are, are experiencing more buoyant demand and trading conditions than pre-pandemic. Do you expect this to continue? And if so, what is driving this demand? Oh, look, no. Look, I think the, the boost to household goods and the boost to food is really because people can't get out and spend on those services. So they're at home 
They've found ways of spending on food and household goods online. Uh, and, of course, in, apart from in, in Melbourne, the stores are open as well. Uh, but they, there's still restrictions on spending on services. So as we reopen and more money starts to go into hospitality, the arts, entertainment, so less will go into those, uh, into those other factors. It is incredible, isn't it? And I think it's fantastic that we're able to show you that, that turnover number on our credit cards just to show you exactly what has been happening because I think people would be really surprised when we said to them, actually, growth in spending on food and household goods is greater now than it was pre-COVID. I think people would have, wouldn't have found that to be intuitively right. But that's what's happening because their incomes have been boosted by JobKeeper, have been protected by JobKeeper, and they have been able to spend money on these other things. That's another big positive for the Australian economy. I know none of us like it, but Australians aren't spending money offshore. So they are looking for ways to spend money domestically. And that, of course, is helping some tourism industries. We'd love to see those state borders open up. And, of course, it's, it's helping um, some tourism industries, and, but it's also helping that, that, household, that household good expenditure. But once we reopen and more money gets spent on services, hospitality, et cetera, so you'll see that lift start to flatten out. Yep. No. Great. Uh, so with low interest rates and huge amounts of government money being pumped into the system, when will inflation rise? I think it's going to be a long time. I really do. Our forecast for inflation, which is very similar to the Reserve Bank's, that inflation will be staying between 1% and 2% for a number of years. Unfortunately, wages growth is going to be a key factor holding down inflation. We talk about that high level of unemployment. While you have a high level of unemployment and people expect low inflation, you're not going to get that wage pressure. So whereas a year ago, we thought that the 2.5% wage increases was too low, now we're looking at one and a halves for a number of years. So the pressure on inflation will be very limited. That argument that I think the, the, the speaker is talking about, the sort of the quantity theory of money, uh, more debt in the economy, um, so there's more money around, so that leads to more inflation. That only happens if people want to borrow the money. But unfortunately, what we saw in the US after the GFC, people didn't want to borrow the money. So in the, even though the US was pumping up the money supply with quantitative easing, and we're going to see that to a degree in Australia, uh, because the people didn't want to spend the money, the pressure on, uh, on, on inflation never eventuated. It's going to be a long, long time before we have to worry about inflation in this country and globally. That actually feeds in well to our next question, which is, as this recession is triggered by a health response and not a byproduct of the economic cycle, should further quantitative easing be considered or a combination of both? Uh, look, I think the quantitative easing is something the Reserve Bank will do. Um, that's going to hold down interest rates. Uh, and I think the, the key is bringing down those interest rates. As I showed you, those lower interest rates are starting to have an impact on that key part of our economy, which is housing. And as we start to see more housing activity and more confidence come back, that's always been the key factor behind getting the Australian economy moving. So to the extent that the Reserve Bank can hold down those interest rates with more quantitative easing, I'm happy. To the extent that the Reserve Bank is sending a message, particularly to state governments, that they'll be there to buy their bonds. The moment the Reserve Bank's bought $63 billion in bonds, only about $11 billion of state government bonds. They can buy more of those bonds. They believe that the, that the state government balance sheets are in very good shape and they'll be prepared to buy more bonds. So generally, holding down those interest rates right across the yield curve is going to help the private sector. So yes, I believe that more quantitative easing is the right thing to do, and I'm very confident that's what is going to happen. Okay, thank you. And this one's quite topical, but getting a bit of play in the media. So in the context of tonight's budget, in your view, at what point are debt levels too much for the country to carry before it begins to negatively impact our long-term economic prosperity? Well, that's why I wanted to show you that cost of servicing the debt. Because even though the net debt to GDP is projected to go from 19% to 43%, which, let me, let me repeat, 
as the Treasurer said tonight, is about half the ratio in the UK, a third the ratio in the US, and a quarter the ratio in Japan. Um, so even though it's set to blow out, the proportion of GDP required to service the debt is actually falling. And that's because interest rates are so low. And what those interest rates are telling us, they're telling us that the financial markets are looking at weak growth and low inflation as far as the eye can see. So they're inviting governments to get in there and try and do more to support demand. And governments can afford to do that. So clearly, if we were to reach a point where governments got very successful, they drove down that unemployment rate, and we started to see growth recover, and and, uh, inter- and and inflation started to come back, then certainly we would central banks would have to start to address that issue. But that's just so far away that what we need to be looking at now is protecting that labour market, getting that unemployment rate down, and if you like, running a risk that we might get some inflation. Because why do central banks target inflation? They don't target inflation in its own right. People don't feel better because inflation's low. People feel better if they have jobs. And it's been proven that countries that were able to contain their inflation pressures in the 70s and 80s and 90s ended up with lower unemployment. But it's about the job story that counts. It's not inflation. That's a, what I would call a, uh, an intermediate target. The real target is jobs and prosperity. That's helpful to understand. So next question. Um, again, there's been much in the media about the financial cliff and the tsunami of business failures. The government is sensibly doing everything they can to save as many businesses as possible. Do you think their plans will see us avoid the financial cliff? That's a really tough one. There will be businesses that won't make it through to the other side, particularly those businesses that just can't last out those incredible shocks that are happening in hospitality, in entertainment, in transport, in accommodation, because restrictions on foreign travel are going to last well into next year. So those businesses are the ones that I have most concern about. Uh, because of this structural change. I think we're also going to, there's going to be a long period where people will be quite nervous about social distancing. Even though the guidelines will be eased, there will be some people say, I'm not going to the pub. I don't want, I've heard that COVID's still around. Look, it's still in the US. Look, it's still in the UK. So those that you'll see not only restrictions, but you'll see people disciplining themselves. And unfortunately, in a situation like that, businesses in those sectors are going to find it very difficult. Other businesses will find it difficult because we're in recession. We've been in recession. Um, But the government is doing what it can in terms of the tax cuts to boost demand, in terms of the investment allowances to try and get investment going, uh, in terms of the infrastructure, in terms of supporting the jobs. Uh, They have to increase um, job seeker. I was amazed that they didn't commit to that. that. That's one thing that will be a permanent change. And that will mean, as I said, there'll be about another 16 billion a year in deficit, but that absolutely has to happen. But the insolvency laws that they've relaxed are allowing companies more time to work through this so that directors can deal with these short-term issues. That's all the right approach, but there'll be some point when their lenders or the businesses themselves will realise that under this new environment, our business model just doesn't work. I'm hoping and expecting that it won't be anything like a sort of job fiscal cliff. As I said, 55 billion of loans to small business have been deferred. And we at Westpac and I'm sure other lenders are very mindful of the fact that it's in their interests to make sure that these businesses have every opportunity to get through to the other side. So I think you'll find that there'll be lots of restructuring, lots of assistance to try and get businesses along the way. But unfortunately, there will be many that will fall by the wayside. Yeah, well, let's hope it's more of a speed bump than a financial cliff. Um, Just going on to the next question. Uh, What are the budget's most significant takeaways for the building and construction sector? 
Well, I think it's all about the uh, the, the 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 write downs. So we know that building and construction uses a lot of capital equipment, and so now, particularly in the small building sector, the tax advantages in investing in new capital equipment is quite high. We've seen the home builder initiative. I actually didn't see in the budget tonight whether they've extended home builder. I assume they have. Um, we've also seen the first home buyers. That's been extended so that uh, people, first home buyers, a, a, a group of first home buyers, five thousand, I think, can get a can get borrow on a five percent uh, deposit. But I'd have to say that whilst indirectly the write down will be very helpful, I didn't see any new policies around supporting the home builder sector. They may have extended it, which I would certainly welcome. They may have increased it, but I certainly didn't see anything. So there's. There was no really high-profile policy there, but you know, I've been ta- I'm talking to you half an hour or well, 20 minutes after the treasurer sat down, so there may be things that have slipped through the cracks here. I don't recall anything in the treasurer's speech as well. I was talking to a builder over the weekend who said they'd never been busier, so maybe they're uh, they're getting what they need. Let's hope that's the case for all of our clients. Um, so we've obviously got a gold investor here. Um, what are your views on gold over the next few years? The commodity has surged over the past 12 months as a safe haven. However, as a vaccine gets developed, what happens when confidence comes back into financial markets? Well, you've had a fabulous run with gold, and I always keep trying to pick the end of the gold boom. But as I said, one of the themes I mentioned today is markets embracing more risk. Markets looking through the new cases and becoming encouraged with the how the world economy may evolve uh, with a vaccine. So think about it. This massive policy stimulus that's been injected around the world, as I said to you, the average fiscal stimulus is 12% of GDP along the lines of our $217 billion. And the central banks around the world have driven their interest rates down to effectively zero. Some central banks, like the US Federal Reserve, are lending money to small business, are buying corporate bonds, are are getting involved in loan syndications. So central banks are massively stimulating the world in the face of COVID. So if the COVID story starts to ease because we start to see a genuine Uh, a genuine vaccine on the other side, that I would have to think that markets will be feeling quite confident to take on more risk. And that usually means weakness in the gold price. Now, there will be other factors. Um, Half the gold price is determined by the direction of the US dollar. And I would see that as being an environment where the US dollar falls as well. So that'll, that'll temper what would happen on gold. But I would think in this current environment, then, uh, then, then the short-term outlook looks, I think, there'll be some short-term weakness in gold. If you think about the really big picture, however, and we, someone else asked about debt and more debt and more debt. So there's no limit to how much money can be created, but there is a limit to how much gold can be created. So longer, longer term, it may well be that the scarcity of gold relative to the huge supply of, of, uh, of cash tends to mean that gold will still have its place. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. We're on our last question, and I can't help myself but throw in a political one that's come from one of our customers. But you talked about how tied we are to China and increasingly tied to China um, and the growth that we expect to see there. Um, obviously, a U.S. election coming up. I'm Canadian, for those that are wondering, but a U.S. election coming up. Um, what impact do you think it'll have on the Australian economy, depending on which way the U.S. votes? Joanna, whenever I talk to someone who has a North American accent, I always say, are you Canadian? Because the Americans don't care. But if you say you're American, Canadians don't like it at all. So I was going to ask you whether, which part of Canada you came from. I suspect Vancouver, but we'll, we can talk about some other We time. can talk about it later. Um, look, um, the US election, uh, if, if, if Biden wins the Senate, he's going to spend some money. He wants to embrace infrastructure. He wants to get things moving. So, okay, he'll raise corporate taxes and he might raise tax on the rich, 
But the thing that disappointed me about the Trump, four years of Trump, was that when he stood up that night, having amazingly beaten Hillary, the first policy that he referred to was infrastructure. It will be an infrastructure revolution. I'm going to spend billions on infrastructure, trillions, I'm sorry, on infrastructure. Never happened. Biden has a massive infrastructure program. It links in with his clean energy concepts. Um, we may well finally start to see a genuine infrastructure movement in the US. Uh, and if that starts to happen, then I think markets will be quite supportive of Biden. Bill, that's the end of the questions. Thank you for sharing your insights, answering so many questions. Thank you again for joining us for this federal budget session.